Good afternoon, church. It is great to hear you, to see you, and to be among you. We are just really pleased to be back and uh, get to spend some time with you this afternoon and um, throughout the weekend as well. Janice and I and the kids, we drove up last night, or actually I guess yesterday afternoon, and then uh, we will be here until Tuesday and head out. We're going to go to Niagara Falls and spend some time uh, family vacation, do a little camping on the way back to Pennsylvania, but I, I'm just thrilled with what God is doing here. Um, it, it's just exciting for me to hear about your outreach into the community. I, I spent some time with a few families already here, and just the, the amount of excitement there is about how the Word of God is getting out, and, and the way that God has been building among you and discipling among you. Uh, it's, it's just warmly encouraging to, to me, to my family, and again, we're just we're thrilled to be here. Uh, just a quick update, a couple of you have been asking, so I figured I'd hit it all in one fell swoop here before we, we start with the, the text of scripture. Um, I continue to serve as a professor at Cairn University. Uh, I'm teaching a lot of wonderful things. I just get, I get the privilege of teaching Hebrew next semester coming up, so uh, super excited about that. Old Testament and theology classes, a lot of really cool stuff for uh, the students there. So the Lord's been using that ministry and using those opportunities to, to help young students grow in their faith. Um, and I'm also a part-time pastor at Riverstone Church in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Lord kind of put some things in place for us. We did not anticipate this. We did not ask for it. We did not search for it. But um, through his providence kind of put us in the right place at the right time that we might be ministered to and that we might minister to uh, this church. Been preaching there a little bit. And also I, I serve as their pastor of ministry development um, which means kind of anything that they need it to mean. So uh, whatever, whatever's needed at that moment um, is where I'm able to serve. And uh, what's one of the really exciting and unanticipated blessings is Janice has been uh, teaching as well again. She went back to teaching. She's teaching fifth grade at a Christian school uh, that all of our kids go to. So by God's grace, we're able to get all four of our kids into a Christian school in Philly, and uh, Janice is teaching right alongside of them. So we're just excited about what God's doing in our lives, excited to be back to share that with you, and really excited about what's happening here. Uh, and I'm really glad you got me cake after service, too. That's, that's very nice of you to think of me like that. So um, as I considered what to preach on, a lot of things came to mind, uh, and I've been meditating a lot lately on the eternal state. What is it going to be like from now on? Or after now, I suppose we could say. You know, what is it going to be like in eternity future forever and ever and ever? Many of you have stayed in contact with me, have asked me about possibly speaking on the end times or, you know, a topic like this. Could you do a sermon or a series or something like that? And the Lord has been working in my heart through a number of different avenues in this area. Uh, of course, we cover this topic in my theology class every semester. And I'm sure you would not be surprised to know that students love to talk about the end times. What is heaven going to be like? What will eternity be like? I mean, we always get tons of questions from students on that topic. So I, I figured that would engage you. Uh, the, other, the other reason I wanted to talk about this, the best book I read this year, uh, besides Larry Eli's book, uh, the best book I read this year was a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I'm going to mention it again. I'll quote a little bit from it uh, later on. It's, it's thick, but it is, ironically, for a book on heaven, down to earth. And uh, it is really, really good. So if you're looking for a good summer read, I'd encourage you to pick that up. 
And the third reason I wanted to talk about this is because, as, as Garrett alluded to before, um, I've, I've continued my studies in the book of Isaiah, and especially towards the end of this book, Isaiah really focuses and looks forward to what is to come. And that's what I wanted to dig into today. I thought what we would do today is take a few moments to forget about now, to stop looking in the past, and to just take a glimpse at the future. What does God have for us as believers in Jesus Christ? It's going to be great. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of great things in life. I mean, some of you have been to weddings this summer already. Uh, some of you have, have had graduations. We've got a graduation celebration after church. There's baptisms. These are all great things. You know, new baby coming, I hear. Is that right? Like any day now? The Nimmo, the Nimmo baby is, is on its way. September? That's close enough, right? I mean, that, in fact, what I titled this morning's sermon is Isaiah 65, something even greater than Garrett and Lauren's new baby. <laughs> You're all too focused on this right here. I want us to glimpse forward into the future and really just get a, a grasp of what God has for us. I mean, new babies are cool. That's exciting. That's great. But the Bible is clear that the eternal state is going to be beyond great. Sound like a good plan? Can I take a moment, pray with you, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in. God, I pray that you focus our minds now on what is to come. Thank you, Lord, that you give us these glimpses in Scripture of what will be. And I pray that as we look at it today, that it would change the way we live now, that it would change the way we think of the past, and Lord, that it would give us a longing, an eager expectation for the future. I pray that the words of Scripture would be clear today, in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to bring us up to speed. Before we actually look at the text of Isaiah, I want to bring us up to speed by, by just talking about three quick things, kind of reminding us of three things. Maybe it's a reminder. Maybe this is new. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but I want to remind us of three things that will help us to be better prepared for what we see in Isaiah 65. First, I want to remind us about God's original intent in creation. For many of you, this is probably review, but you're going to see it's going to be a very helpful review. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, first two chapters of Scripture, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Six days, God creates all this universe, everything that we know in existence, God creates in six days. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He separates the water from the dry land. He, he commanded vegetation to sprout forth upon the earth. He put the stars and the planets in the heavens. He creates all these things. On the fifth day, he begins creating the animals. He creates birds and great sea creatures and fish. And on day six, God creates the living creatures on the land. And the apex of that creation, the greatest part of that whole creation, is when God makes humankind, Adam and Eve. Uh, God makes man in his own image, and on that sixth day, God commanded Adam, the first man, and he said this in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2 then gives us more instructions from God to Adam. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I want you to notice that. Adam was charged to work the garden and to keep the garden. You could even translate that last word to guard the garden. To work it 
and to guard it. Even before the curse of sin and death and all the pain and misery that we feel now, even before that entered the picture, Adam was working. Work is a good thing. Work is not part of the curse. Let's keep that in mind. That's going to become very significant in a few minutes. Well, then God creates woman to be with man. They live in perfect harmony with creation, with each other, with God. Uh, animals and humans living in perfect harmony. Animals with animals. Humans with humans. Humans with God. Perfect peace, perfect shalom all across the universe. No sin, no death. They had work to do, but it was work that satisfied. It was work that produced good fruit always. There was no harm in all of that creation until there was. Nothing until the serpent came along and tempted Adam and Eve. Maybe you know that story too. The devil in the form of a serpent convinced Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. The one thing God told them not to do, of course they did. And because of this, sin and death and disharmony entered into this existence. And it's at this point that the animal kingdom began to eat each other. It's at this point that Adam and Eve and their relationship with each other changed forever. And it's at this point that their relationship with God changed forever as well. And as a result of that sin, God cursed all the major players in Genesis 3. Just a quick review of this. Genesis 3.14, he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Crawl on your belly and eat dirt, serpent. And then he curses the woman. God says to her in Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. She should be fruitful and multiply, but it's only going to happen through pain now, God says. She's going to have a fractured and difficult relationship with her husband. And then God turns to the man, to Adam. And God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's task to work, to keep the garden, to guard the garden, to till the ground for food, is now going to become difficult. It will not produce the desired results as easily as before. Work becomes a curse for him. So their world was one of perfect harmony, perfect return for their labor, perfect satisfaction, perfect peace. But now, after the curse, it's become the world that we know. There's pain in childbearing. Aren't you excited about that, Lauren? There's fractured relationships. We all know that too well. There's lack of satisfaction and difficult work in life. Many of us know this too well as well. Every life, every corner of this universe is impacted by the, by the effects of that curse and sin and death. That is the world that we live in. So that's the first thing I want us to keep in mind. Second thing I want us to remind us of is the perspective of many of the writers and prophets of Scripture. We're going to be looking at a prophet today. And what we need to remember is that sometimes the perspective of the prophets of Scripture wasn't as nuanced or precise as maybe we want it to be. We want them to talk to us chronologically, 
precisely how and when each future thing is going to happen, but they kind of sometimes present it more in a, in a jumbled fashion, all mixed together in like a big bowl of spaghetti, I guess. Now, this especially is true of writers of the Old Testament. I often use this analogy for my class. If we could put the mountain picture up there, and you, you probably, have, many of you have heard this analogy. This doesn't originate with me by any means, but the author, authors of Scripture talked about the Messiah coming. Christ will one day come. The Messiah will come. They all believed that. And from there, where they were standing, if, if the Messiah's coming was like a mountain, from they were standing, where they were standing, from that limited vision, they just talked about the Messiah coming. If you're looking at the mountain face on, you're just looking at it face up like that, you don't have an overall aerial perspective, it looks like just one big coming, doesn't it? The Messiah's coming. But what they didn't realize was there was a valley between the coming of the Messiah. That's the second picture that we have up here. From their perspective, it looked like just one big mountain. What they didn't realize was there's a valley in between. First, the Messiah will come to die, to suffer. Then the Messiah will come to reign as king. We are in that valley right now. But from their perspective, they might talk about these two events side by side all at the same time without realizing perhaps there's a, a separation between them. I was impacted um, this year reading through a, uh, an Old Testament theology by a guy named Bruce Waltke. And if we go to the next slide, I've got a, a slide. This is from his work here. Uh, but one of the things he notices in, in the book of Micah, this is a great example of it. In the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, in 10 verses, in the span of 10 verses, prophesies about five different things. But he talks about it all as if it's all one big thing. And he, he doesn't have big separations between these things. He just, he talks about the Babylonian invasion in 586. He, he talks about uh, Zion or Jerusalem's victory after a, an Assyrian's reign back in 701. He flashes forward and, and looks at the Messiah's coming. He's, he's talking about all these things. In 10 verses, he's got five different things he writes about. But he writes about it as if it's all one big thing. Now, why am I saying all this? What I want us to remember as we approach Isaiah is that from the perspective of the writers of Scripture, sometimes they don't have the view that we do. They weren't as nuanced. They weren't as chronological. And what we might see today is that perhaps some of the things they're talking about are things in the eternal state. Perhaps some of the things are not things all the way in the eternal state, but maybe we, things that we experience a little before that. So we'll get back to this and come back to this idea, but I just want you to tuck that away for now. So we keep in mind the story of Genesis 1 to 3. A perfect creation ruined by sin. We keep in mind the perspective of the writers of Scripture. End times events are sometimes blended together because of their perspective. Third, and I promise this is the last thing before we get to the text of Isaiah. Pastor Garrett said I could preach for two hours today, right? Is that right? So I have plenty of time. Uh, but third, we, we keep in mind the context of Isaiah. We're jumping into the second to the last chapter here of this book, which means 64 chapters have come before us before we've looked at this today. How do we sum up 64 chapters of Scripture? Well, I'll do it like this. Behold God and proclaim his word. That's what Isaiah's message is. Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's holiness. He beholds God's greatness, and he's given this commission to go out and proclaim that to different people. First half of the book, he's proclaiming the judgment of God is coming. He's proclaiming the word of God to the nations around Israel. 
second half of the book is a little bit more cheery. He's proclaiming that God is going to renew the people from exile. He's going to bring them back from judgment. He's going to restore them. But in that restoration, especially as we get to the very end of this book, Isaiah begins to glimpse beyond the restoration of exile and starts to think about what is to come ultimately. Like what is to come all the way in the future beyond our death, even beyond the return of Christ. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. Isaiah 65, if you've got your Bibles, Isaiah 65, we will start in verse 17. This is God speaking Isaiah's words, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I want to stop and dwell on that just for a moment right there. Just think about that statement, the, the bigness of that statement. First of all, notice that word behold. Remember, when you see the word behold, it's inviting you to look with the author. Check this out. Look at it from my perspective. Will you imagine this? Picture this. God creates new heavens and a new earth. And Isaiah purposely words this to remind us of the opening verse of Scripture. You know that verse. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Almost every word from that opening passage of scripture is reflected here in Isaiah 65, verse 17. Same verb, create. Same object of creation, except this time it's not just the heavens and the earth, it's the new heavens and the new earth. By using that same language of Genesis 1, Isaiah informs us that this activity of God is a second creation event. That's how big this is. God is creating again. But this time it's new. A new heavens. A new earth. Now many interpreters have wrestled with this idea. What exactly does that mean? Does God start 100% from scratch? Does he burn it all down, wipe it all clean, and just remake from nothing? Or does God restore and redeem the creation that's already here? Which one is it? Does, does God make all new things or does God make all things new? What does he do? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think, but not yet. I'm going to wait till we get to verse 19 because I think that verse actually answers that question. But for now, it's good enough to know that God sometime in the future is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, by new heavens, plural, I don't think this means heaven in the way that we think of heaven. Heavens, plural, typically in scripture refers to the sky, the atmosphere, even space, all the universe as we know it. New earth means new earth. But this is the first major implication in our text. The thing that I want you to grasp right now. This might be a surprise to you, but we will spend eternity on earth, not in heaven. I don't know if you realize this. A lot of times when we think about eternity, we think about we're going to spend eternity in heaven. I always thought about it like that. I always thought we'd be up in heaven for all of eternity. We'd be sitting on clouds, playing the harp, worshiping Jesus forever and ever. But the Bible consistently speaks about an eternity spent right here on earth. A recreated earth. But what in the world is that going to be like? Thankfully, Isaiah answers that for us. Look at the second half of verse 17. He says, And the former things shall not be remembered 
or come into mind? Now, this one can be a little bit tricky. I often get asked this question when I'm talking about heaven or eternity. Are we going to know our loved ones in heaven? Are we going to remember things that happen in our life? Will I remember that I was a pastor? Will I remember my family? Will I remember this church? Like, will I remember these things when I get to heaven? And at a first glance, a quick glance, if we were to only have this half verse in scripture, we would say, no, the former things won't be remembered. But I think we need to take a, a closer glance than just a quick glance. In fact, I think we need to consider the context around this. Notice how the first word of this verse begins with four. For behold, I create the new heavens and the new earth. For connects this verse back to something he's already said. And if you look back at verse 16, let's go to that, verse 16. Isaiah tells us that the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from our eyes. And then he explains how this can be. How can it be that the former troubles are forgotten? Well, because God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And those former things, specifically those former troubles, will not be remembered or come to mind. In the Bible, by the way, the word remembered doesn't mean just an intellectual remembering. Like, like I remembered something intellectually or mentally. What the word remembered typically means is that we choose not to act on something. We choose not to bring up the past. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, that doesn't mean that God cannot actually remember their sin. I mean, God is a God outside of time. God is an omniscient God. He knows all things past, present, and future. But what the prophet means is that God has chosen not to act on their sin. He has chosen to willfully put it out of his mind. It's kind of like this. Let me give you an example of this. If you're at a restaurant and a waitress accidentally spills some hot coffee into your lap. Now, you could be really forgiving. And if you are, maybe you would say something like, don't worry, I've already forgotten about it. Well, not literally, because your clothes are stained and your crotch is burning, right? I mean, that... You know, it's not literally I forgot about that, but that's the idea behind that saying. You're telling her accidents happen. I'm not going to hold it against you. And that's similar to the way that God says that we will not remember the past. And God does not remember our sins. This is where that book by Randy Alcorn was really helpful for me in thinking through this. Let me quote from you a passage from his book. He says, in eternity... Past sins or sorrows won't preoccupy God or us. We'll be capable of choosing not to recall or dwell on anything that would diminish heaven's joy. Heaven cleanses our slate of sin and error, but it doesn't erase our memory of it. If we forget or forgot we were desperate sinners, how could we appreciate the depth and meaning of Christ's redemptive work for us? Heaven's happiness won't be dependent on our ignorance of what happened on earth, Rather, it will be enhanced by our informed appreciation of God's glorious grace and justice as we grasp what really happened here. You'll find those kinds of thoughts all over that book. So what does that mean? Will I remember my, my loved ones from earth? Yes. Moses and Elijah, remember that passage where they, where they show up in the transfiguration? Jesus transfigures before the disciples and then Moses and Elijah are there. I mean, we know who they were. They knew who the disciples were. The disciples knew who they were. Jesus himself even kept his own scars after being raised from the dead. 
which tells me that there's going to be some continuity between this life and next. Now, does that mean I'm going to be stuck with my name for all of eternity? And if, you're, if your name is something awkward like Nimmo, are you going to be stuck with that forever? I, I don't know. Revelation chapter 2 talks about believers getting a new name, so perhaps we won't have to be stuck with something terrible like that forever, praise the Lord. But however these details shake out, it's going to be great. It's going to be greater than Garrett and Lauren's new baby. It's going to be greater than all the greatness that you know even right now. How do I know? Because verse 18 tells us again. Look at verse 18. Isaiah writes, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now, I want you to catch the flow of these verses. Something really cool happens here. Three times God uses the same two words, the same two root words, glad or gladness and joy or rejoicing. Three times. And its flow is really helpful for us to study. The first time God uses this pair of words, these are commands for God's people. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. God's people should rejoice because God is going to create a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, I mean, what should this message from Isaiah do for us? It should cause us to rejoice and be glad. It should lift our hearts. We should be excited when we leave here today if we're listening correctly to what Isaiah has to say. So first, God commands his people, rejoice and be glad. But notice what he does next. The next line, he says, he gives the reason that we should rejoice and be glad. He says, for behold, check this out, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. So God's holy city and God's holy people are both created for the purpose of joy and gladness. The language of the text here is, is wonderfully ambiguous as well in the original language. If you compare translations, here's what you'll see. I put a couple translations up on the screen here. ESV, the one I'm reading from here, says, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The New American Standard Version has Jerusalem and God's people are, or excuse me, I will create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. The New Living Translation says, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. So ESV has Jerusalem and God's people are the joy and gladness. NASB, Jerusalem and God's people are created for the purpose of rejoicing and being glad. And New Living Translation, Jerusalem and God's people are the sources of joy and gladness for other people. Which one's correct? Yeah, the cool thing is the Hebrew allows for all of these. It's ambiguous in the way that you can translate it. And I almost wonder if it's not purposefully ambiguous to allow for each of these options. First, God creates his people, and he says, I want you to rejoice and be glad. And then he says, I created you for this very purpose. The only way we can fulfill God's desire for our joy and for our gladness is if God creates the right atmosphere for it. And that becomes contagious for other people to be excited and get involved in that joy and gladness themselves. But once the Lord does that, once he creates that atmosphere, once he enables us to follow that command of being glad and rejoicing. Then notice the first part of verse 19 again. God says these words, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will be glad in my people. 
So notice this flow. First, God commands us to rejoice and be glad. Then, God says, I have to intervene in order for you to be rejoicing and being glad. And then God says, once that's happened, I will rejoice and be glad. And in this way, God gets the glory for God getting the glory. Isn't that cool? Even, even the things that we celebrate, God gets the glory for it because God had to enable it within us. So Isaiah digs deep into that idea and lets us know all of this to come. I mean, it's not just our doing. It's not something we created of ourselves. This is God getting the glory for God getting the glory. Now, earlier I brought up the issue of whether earth will be totally recreated or totally new. Like, will God make all new things or will God make all things new? And I said I would answer that in verse 19. Well, we're here in verse 19. Look at the second half of this verse. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now notice those words, no more. The way this is worded in the original language, we can write it, not again. And the again indicates that there is some continuity with the previous form of its existence. He's making a contrast. This is how it was back then. This is how it will be in the same place. No more shall be heard in it. In what? In the new Jerusalem, in the new earth. No more, though, implies that there once was an existence in this same place. So I understand this to mean that God will make all things new, not all new things. He will restore the cursed heavens and the earth. It will be a work of resurrection and redemption. God didn't fail the first time around. He will redeem what we have ruined. And that's something we get to look forward to. But let's not miss the point. There will be no more weeping and no more crying. Can, can we just wrap our minds around that for a moment? Think about the last time you cried. Obviously, this is the bad kind of crying. Crying over death, crying over a doctor's diagnosis, crying over your children's bad decisions, crying over burnt dinner. I don't know. This is the bad kind of crying. As we were on our way here, Janice looked over at me as we, right as we were crossing into the Michigan state line here, and she said, how many times do you think I'm going to cry while I'm here this weekend? And the, you know, it's a, it's a mix of good and bad, right? There's bittersweet tears there. We love you. We miss you. Uh, but God is doing a wonderful thing here and there. Well, we're not going to have the bad tears anymore in eternity. We will have no more reason to bad cry. You can walk the streets of New Jerusalem all day long and not hear one single sound of weeping. Imagine a world so full of joy that there will be no more tears. What a beautiful thought. Then he goes on in verse 20. And he develops this further. He says, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now this is the trickiest verse that we're going to see today. It's a bit tricky because this might be where there could be a blend of what Isaiah is talking about. What is he seeing here? Is this just eternity future? Because if it is, how could there be death in eternity future? 
So some people think that Isaiah is talking about what we call the millennium, the millennial kingdom. I'm going to put a chart up here for you. And uh, if you want this, just send me an email. I, you don't feel like I have to scratch it all down right now. But um, this, is, this is one way that some people have pictured what is to come. So we're in the church age right now. And, and some people believe that in the future there will be a tribulation time period, a seven-year period of, of really intense uh, judgment on earth. And then Christ will return finally and fully, and he'll set up what we call the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of, of a wonderful time where Christ reigns on earth. But during that time, there will still be people being born, people being married, there will be death, but just not as much of it, not as much of death, not as much bad things. Satan will be locked away for a time, um, but, but Christ himself will reign. It'll be a great time. And after that period is over, then eternal state begins. Then eternity truly begins. That's one way that some people have understood the eternal state. Now, another way some people have understood it, if we go to the second slide here, is some people look at scripture and say, well, I, I think kind of a lot of those events that we see in Revelation are actually taking place now. Like the tribulation describes what we go through today in the church age and, and the millennium is actually right here and right now. Eventually, Christ will return. It's not a literal thousand years that we have to wait, but eventually he'll return and then we enter into the eternal state. Now, the reason I mention both of these is not because I want to tell you, I think, which one's better and wrestle through all that this morning. I have my opinions on that, and you probably do too, but that's not my purpose here. My purpose is to say, though, that this passage is really tricky to place in either one of these. If Isaiah is talking about that millennial time period, well, then why did he talk about the new heavens and new earth? Why did he start by talking about the eternal state? If Isaiah is talking about only the eternal state, then why would he talk about death? You see why this is difficult? Now, some people have interpreted this and said, like, I remember reading some of Tim LaHaye's works way back when, and he, he argued that uh, the, the death that we see here is talking about that millennial state, that, that thousand-year period of Christ on earth. And he says his argument is a person will live a hundred years, and they have that hundred years to accept Christ. If they haven't accepted Christ by year 100, they die and they go to hell. They're judged right there. 100-year-old is accursed if they don't know God. That's possible, I suppose. But in my view, I think that we're still talking about the eternal state here. I think what we're seeing here is we understand this statement to say and indicate that everyone in eternity future is going to live a long and prosperous life. Death won't reign anymore. In other words, I think Isaiah is using poetry and using metaphors and using even hyperbole to make his point. And his point is that what we're looking at here is an eternity totally unlike anything we've ever experienced. I don't know how many of you are a hundred years old yet, but if you are, you're not a spring chicken anymore. But in eternity future, you will be. hundred years is nothing in eternity future. You're going to talk about a person living to 100 and he's still but an infant in, in the perspective of eternity. And I think that's kind of what Isaiah is getting at here. Now, there's a possibility that what he's doing is, as I mentioned before, kind of blending some things together. Maybe he's talking about the millennium. Maybe he's talking about eternity future all in one fell swoop. That's a possibility. But I think what we're seeing here is this principle. And this is what I want you to grasp. Eternity is Edenic. 
Eternity is Edenic. Now, what does that mean? When we think about Eden, the Garden of Eden, there was no death. There was long life. There was no crying or mourning. There was no sin. There was no sorrow. None of that existed. And the way that Isaiah describes eternity, the way that other writers of Scripture describe eternity, it's Edenic. It's just like the Garden of Eden. No death, long lives, a perfect existence. People who are 100 years old, they might as well be still considered babies. Notice how this statement reverses aspects of the curse. The curse brought death. Isaiah here speaks of life. We see more of this in verses 21 and 22. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Doesn't that sound great? Now these verses not only allude to the Garden of Eden, but there's even a reference to the book of Deuteronomy here. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, right before the people are about to enter into the old Jerusalem, they're standing at, at the edge of the promised land, and God, through Moses, gives them a series of blessings and curses. He says, if you're obedient, I'm going to bless you just like this. If you're disobedient, I'm going to curse you just like this. Now, in the middle of those curses, Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, God says this, you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. God says, if you disobey my covenant, you're not going to enjoy the work of your hands. Deuteronomy is a reflection of Genesis chapter 3. The curse is there. Adam and Eve disobeyed, therefore the work of Adam's hands was cursed. Deuteronomy, the Israelites disobeyed, the work of their hands would be cursed. But now in Isaiah, we see the flip-flop of both of those. In the eternal state, the work of our hands will be forever fruitful. We will never work on a project and not see its reward. Doesn't that sound cool? Have you ever worked for years and years and years on something and not been able to enjoy it? Maybe someone else swoops in and steals your work. Maybe someone else gets the credit for what you did. Maybe you work on something. Maybe it's an addition to your house. And, and then as soon as you finish it, you end up having to move because of your job. Life can be pretty frustrating like that, can't it? Right before we were here, we were at someone's house and my son took like an hour to build this really cool like little marble trail. And then we had to go and we destroyed the whole thing. Sorry, that's the world that we live in today. But that's not our eternal future. The way this is worded at the end of verse 22, it says the work of their hands will be, literally it reads, satisfyingly exhausted. The work of their hands will be satisfyingly exhausted. In other words, every single day will feel like a day of hard work that is fully rewarding. We get glimpses of that today. Many of you know what it's like to put in a full day's work. Maybe it's a project around the house. Maybe it's a full day at your job, whatever it is. And you get that satisfying feeling of accomplishing something. You know what that feels like? That is every day of eternity. Everything you do in eternity future will have that feeling of satisfying exhaustion. Nothing you do will ever be partial or unearned or incomplete or unsatisfying. Every day will feel like graduation. But remember, eternity is Edenic. 
And in Eden, before the curse, Adam was told to work the ground, guard the garden. He had satisfying, good, wholesome work to do, work that had a profitable return. That's how it's going to be in the future. And if that doesn't sound good to you, it's probably because you live in a sin-cursed world. And you don't know what it feels like to have a perfect return for your labor. We only get a taste, a glimpse of what that looks like here. We will be satisfyingly exhausted day by day. And church, it only gets better. Because in verse 23, God says, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Now again, this is difficult to picture how Isaiah could mean this very literally if he's talking about that eternal future state. Eternity is going to be Edenic, but there will be some differences between Eden and what eternity will be like. In Eden, Adam and Eve were married. They were supposed to have kids. Jesus, though, said to his disciples that in the eternal state, there will be neither marriage nor, give, nor being given in marriage. He doesn't say that anything specifically about kids, but one usually follows the other in God's plan. So there will be some differences between Eden and between eternity. So this verse either refers to that millennial time period, or perhaps if it's talking about eternity, it's, it's more of a poetic way of saying the curse will be reversed. What was Eve's curse? Pain and childbearing. But now no one will ever labor in vain. No child will ever be born only to die young or live a troubled life. Many of you have experienced this kind of trauma. I mean, Janice and I, we, we have four children, uh, but twice we miscarried in our marriage. We know what that's like. It was difficult. It was sad. It was traumatizing in many ways. One of the most difficult days I've ever had as a pastor was a time when our, our church received, and this is a church in New Jersey I was working at, received a phone call from a grieving mother. She wasn't really associated or connected well with our church, but she didn't have anywhere else to reach out to, so she called us. I was the pastor on duty that day. The senior pastor was away or something like that. And I walked into this house, and everybody was weeping because just about a half an hour before I stepped foot in the door, an infant had died. They put the baby in the swing to take a nap. The baby never woke up. Mom was pouring her eyes out and just weeping and weeping. The, the, the family was hysterical. It was chaotic. It was heartbreaking. Never again in eternity future. No one will ever suffer that kind of pain again. In fact, everyone in eternity will be the offspring of God. It says they'll be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. But perhaps here's even the best part. Look at verse 24. God says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The pronouns here are written with, with great emphasis. I myself will answer before they call, God says. I myself, not, not, I'm not going to have a prophet answer for them. I'm not going to have a pastor answer for them. I myself will answer before they even ask me. You ever have that experience? I don't know how many of you spouses try to finish the sentence for the other one or think that you know the answer before the other one's asked the question. And there are times when I think that I know what my wife is thinking and I try to pretend like I do, but that usually ends in great failure. God will have such a personal relationship with each one of us that before we ever have to ask, he will answer. We'll be speaking and he will truly hear us without any doubt. 
You ever have that experience where you're talking to someone and you're pretty sure even though they're standing in front of you and they're looking at you and they're nodding up and down, they're not listening at all? That's maddening, isn't it? Oh, some of you are like, yeah, you're describing your sermon right now, pastor. But that will never, ever happen with God. He will always be with his people and listen, truly listen to his people. When we need to ask a question, he'll answer it before we even have to ask. This is describing a relationship unlike anything you have ever had before. It's a reversal of what Adam and Eve went through. Remember Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he calls to them, they're hiding. Well, here, even before he calls or before we call on him, he's answering us. What a wonderful thing. I don't know how many of you have ever been frustrated because you feel like you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and God's not answering or God's not listening. You will never have that feeling in eternity. Never again. What a blessed thing. We have a question. God answers it. When we're speaking, God listens. And then we come to the last verse. This is a cool one. Verse 25. God says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This verse might seem vaguely familiar to some of you. Way back when, I was preaching in the book of Isaiah, and I encouraged a congregation to memorize Isaiah chapter 11. Long, long time ago. Isaiah 11 has very similar wording. In fact, if you match up the words of Isaiah 65 with the words of Isaiah 11, if you take a look at the screen, I've got a slide here for that. What you'll notice, this is that there shall come forth a seed from the stump of Jesse passage, or a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember that passage? Isaiah 11 is talking about the Messiah. A Messiah from David's line is going to come. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll usher in a time of peace and righteousness. He's going to bring harmony to creation. He's going to reverse the curse. And what Isaiah 65 does is it picks up on those words and enhances them. Notice how each of the phrases in Isaiah 65 is reusing Isaiah 11 except for one of them. The only phrase that's new up here is dust shall be the serpent's food. Isaiah 11 did talk about snakes. Little kids will play with snakes. But he uses other words for snakes. This is using the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 3 to talk about the serpent, the devil. Isaiah purposefully uses that same imagery to draw our minds to Genesis 3 to say, guess what? That curse is going to be reversed. Because you remember what it said in Genesis 3.14. God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, does Isaiah mean that every snake in eternity was going to slither around chomping on dirt? I'm not so sure about that. I think this is another poetic way of saying everything will get restored. The curse will be reversed except the curse upon the devil. He does not get his redemption. He does not get restored. But you and I, believers, do. In fact, the entire animal kingdom gets restored. Number two question I probably get when I talk about heaven. Will there be animals in heaven? Yes, 
just not cats, but other animals, all of them, they'll, they'll be there, right? I mean, it's eternity. Eternity is Edenic. In the Garden of Eden, all animals got along together, every one of them, with each other and with humans. That's not the way it works around here, though, right now, is it? We live in Pennsylvania, and right down the street, we have this giant pet store. Uh, it, it's like a free zoo. It's great. I just take the kids there. We shop around all day and don't get anything. It's great. But Nathan, the other day, we're driving, and Nathan, my, my oldest son, had this idea. He's like, Dad, we should go to the pet store, and we should buy two different kinds of fish that don't get along and put them in the same bowl and see who wins. <laughs> and I said, well, Nathan, I mean, that's how serial killers begin, but... Um, <laughs> I actually shared with him a story how I did that in college at one point. It was, you know, we like had these fish fights that we would do, but um, it, it was the way of nature, right? Nature eats nature right now. Fish eat fish and, and animals eat animals. All of the animal kingdom doesn't get along with each other. In fact, I'll tell you another story. The other day I was up in my office writing this sermon and my daughter comes shouting up at me, dad, there's a mouse in the kitchen. I said, double click on it. No, just joking. Um, so I, I, I came downstairs, and, and sure enough, there's this little tiny baby mouse. I mean, like this big, this little fluffy ball of fur, cutest little thing you can imagine, just walking along our floorboards, just sniffing around, not afraid of us at all. So in front of my daughter, as she screamed and yelled at me, I took a shoe, and I stomped the life out of that mouse. I'm sorry to say. I mean, not really. And she's, you know, Dad, why are you doing this? And I said, well, because they're vermins. They're disease-filled. They'll, they'll, I mean, there's a baby mouse, which means there's mama mouse somewhere else, right? We want to get it out of the house. If I let it out, it's coming right back in. Well, that's disturbing to you, isn't it? That's, no. <laughs> Jim, Jim, you be quiet over there, Jim, okay? That's why you get snakes, Jim. That's what you do. You let snakes in the house. Because right now they don't eat dust, right? <laughs> now, why am I telling you these horrible stories? Well, I'm telling you to give you an illustration here. Animals eat animals. Humans and animals, we don't mix today either in many ways. We don't live with mice in our house and, and just let them get along. But one day, it will be like that. One day, Nathan can put a, a piranha and a goldfish together in a bathtub and have a bath with them while riding a lion and petting an octopus. Like, it, it can all happen at once. I, I really, I'm looking forward to owning a pet T-Rex and marching down the street through town. Like, that's my hope in eternity future. But Isaiah says, no one will hurt or destroy each other again. No broken marriages. No church splits. No war. No disease. No death absolute, eternal peace and harmony in the future. That sounds beautiful. Now, where does this all, all this leave us? What should this do for us? This should leave a burning fire in our bones. It should cause us to rejoice and be glad in the God who creates this environment. It should cause a longing for that ultimate redemption to come, a yearning for a restored world. Every time we suffer a hardship, every time we mourn a loss, every time a fractured relationship keeps us up at night, every time our bodies ache when we get up in the morning, we look forward to the day when these things will never be again. 
The Apostle Paul writes, it's not just us that longs for this, but in Romans 8, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, creation itself longs for this moment. It longs for the day Isaiah talks about here. Our hearts burn for it. When we see something wrong in this world, that's a piece of us saying it is wrong and God will one day make it right. So church, rejoice and be glad. The very last words of scripture and some of the last chapters of scripture reflect on Isaiah's thoughts and reflect on that reversal. Let me read you just a short little passage from Revelation 21 to bring this all together. The apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You hear Isaiah's words there. And he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do your hearts burn for that day? Do you long for that? Life is not perfect now. It is full of heartache and sin and misery and death. But if we allow those imperfections to stir up that longing in our hearts for the perfect world to come, we will be better witnesses for Jesus Christ and we will be better worshipers of Jesus Christ. So church, let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus, as we glimpse into the future. We're going to close with a song, the hymn of heaven, which reflects on these themes. But as the the praise team comes up and gathers for one last song, let me just take a moment and pray for you. God, we long for this day. We truly do. Our hearts break for this world around us, for the things that we have been through, for the sin that we've encountered, for the things that we wrestle with. But Lord, we long for the day when you will restore all things, when you will redeem your people and your earth. Jesus, we pray you would come back soon. We pray that we would be ready, a bride adorned for her husband. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and rejoice and be glad in our rejoicing and our gladness as a result of what you've done in us. We thank you, Lord, for the work of redemption you're doing right here at Redemption. And I pray that we can get a little taste of heaven even right now, but long for that day to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.